We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. You hear me? There it is. Perfect. Perfect. And so I, uh, I've gotten to spend time with your two pastors over the last couple of years. I would even call Chris Preby my pastor in many times over the past couple of years, and he's walked with me faithfully through a lot of things. He's such a good shepherd. You have two wonderful shepherds, and I don't just say that because I was told to or I was paid to or there's some other motive. I really believe that, and so it's a gift to spend time under uh, their community with you guys this morning. So let's get started. You guys have been in the book of Acts. I want to start, though, talking about one of my favorite coffee shops that you're very familiar with, Cultivate Coffee. You're probably like, this is another ad for the thing we hear about every week. But anyways, I've been thinking about Cultivate Coffee and specifically how much I love coffee. Not, not K-cup coffee, although if you do that, that's okay. But like slow, poor, Chemex coffee. Can I get an amen from anybody? Does anybody drink their coffee that way? Nobody. All right. That's okay. Three people. Great. But when you think about coffee, uh, the cool thing about it, is, at least for me, is the process involved. So this bag right here, a lot has come before you have coffee in this bag. Think about this. A coffee tree somewhere probably thousands of miles from here was planted. It was nurtured and watered. The sun uh, gave it light and helped it grow. Eventually, it produced a coffee fruit or berry. That berry was picked then by a worker in the farm. That berry was then uh, taken apart or laid out in the sun to dry. And then a bunch of green coffee beans was put into a really heavy bag and then was shipped on an airplane all the way to a coffee shop somewhere, maybe at Cultivate Coffee. And then it sits in the back there waiting to be roasted. And then Chris Preeby grabs the bag. He pours the beans into the coffee uh, roaster. He roasts the coffee beans and then he puts them in these little bags. And let's just be honest, 16 ounce bags, that's pretty cool because now most coffee comes in only 8 ounce bags and they, pay, they charge you 25 bucks. Can I get an amen on that if you drink nice coffee? And so you have this bag of coffee. There's so much that has gone before what goes into then you holding this bag. You guys have been in the book of Acts for quite some time now. And I love how Acts 1.1 says, all that Jesus, uh, he's Luke talking, hey Theophilus, I wrote a previous book to you, now I'm going to write a second book to you. Of all the things Jesus began to do and teach, began. Like you and I get to continue the work of Jesus. And much like a coffee bag right here, of all the work that's gone before, you and I get to continue. Now we take these beans, we put them in a grinder, we grind them up. We put them into a Chemex or into a coffee pot, and we set the timer for the morning at 5 a.m. If you're, if you're that kind of person. And then you enjoy this cup of coffee. But you get to continue on the work that's gone into making this thing into a cup of coffee. And you and I, in the book of Acts, we've been invited. Hey, Jesus began this great work, and now you get to continue it. You get to participate. We get to be partners in Jesus' kingdom. And so that's the invitation this morning as we continue in the book of Acts. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Acts chapter 13. This is the text I've been assigned. It is a really long sermon. Not my sermon, hopefully, today. Paul, but, but, but Paul's sermon in this passage. Acts chapter 13. If you want to turn there, 
I would love today to break up this passage into three parts to talk about the journey, the message, and the response. The journey, the message, and response. So let's start reading Acts chapter 13, verse 13. 13, 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. It says this. From Paphos, Paul and his companion sailed to Perga. A lot of P words here, huh? It's a tongue twister. In Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. All right, pause right there. Only one verse in. But I don't want you to miss what's happening here in this first verse. As we look at this first verse, I want you to notice specifically that it says where John left them. When I was studying this passage the last couple of weeks, I thought he was referring to the Apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples. John left them. But then I was like, oh, maybe that's, I don't remember John and Paul traveling together. Uh, if you move up in your Bible to Mark or to Acts chapter, uh, can you move up to Acts chapter 12, verse 25? It gives us a little bit more context of who this John is. Acts chapter 12, verse 25. It says, 12.25, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. This is John Mark, not John the Apostle. Now, why are we spending so much time trying to understand who John is? This isn't a Bible study, this is a sermon. Just stay with me for a second. Uh, go over to Acts 13, verses 4 and 5. Let's, we learn a little bit more about John. The two of them, it says Acts 13, verse 4, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus, which is an island. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Same John. Now go back to our passage. John 13, verse 13. Now here in this passage, you say that it says that John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, why did he leave? Interestingly, Acts here, and Luke is saying this really cordially, John left them, but now turn over to Acts 15, verse 36. It sounds a little bit different here. Acts 15, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back to visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas, verse 37, wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them. Ooh, that sounds a little bit more harsh than he just left them. He had deserted them. He had deserted them. There's a lot of theories of why John Mark turned back. Uh, they, when they arrived at this port, uh, he knew that the journey would go over a mountain range. So maybe he was afraid to do some hiking to get to one of the places that Paul wanted to go to. Maybe he was uncomfortable with all the mission that was happening to those who were outside the Jewish faith, to all the Gentiles. Like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. He grew up in a really stout Jewish home. Maybe he was afraid of bandits. There was a known on this road they were going to go on that there's people were being attacked. But regardless, he deserted them. This is the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He deserted them. Now, it'd be easy to move on in the story, but I think this is the first part and the first implication for us this morning. Is as you walk with Jesus, especially in a community, 
some will leave. You will be, to use the D word, deserted. Some will leave. And it's always painful, regardless of how or why or what, some will leave. And yes, some will leave as in like, uh, they'll leave the faith. Like they'll abandon Jesus. So I don't, and I don't, so I, I love you guys, and I, I know some of the, the stories of your church, so I don't really know every story in here, but I wonder how much of this resonates with you uh, in your experiences. So some, like some will literally abandon the faith, and how painful that is. Or some will choose to maybe uh, to pair up with another church or community for good or for bad reasons, regardless. It's still painful. Some will leave. John Mark left. He deserted them, as Paul reminds us of. Have you experienced that? Whether it's a family member, a friend, somebody in this community that isn't here in the room this morning, I don't know, that have left. It's painful every time. One of the ways that, one of the things that happens, and I, and I know this even as a pastor of a church, as as folks come and go, as you can become calloused and cynical about people. As you experience people leaving and lost, you can become calloused and cynic of the people that you're trying to lead. I would love right now, just in the quiet of the space, we're not going to turn to somebody around you. I think you guys do that though, right? Like us, you guys turn to each other. Don't worry, we'll do that later. You're like, I wish we had a guest preacher today. We weren't going to do that. Or maybe you're like, great, this is exciting. I'd love to just pray. I want you to think of a person that you know that has left in some form or way. Maybe from this community or your family or someone that's not even related at all. But I want you to pray. I want you to pray that you wouldn't be calloused and cynical, but right now you would pray for repair and reconciliation. The good news of the story is actually later in in Paul's letters, they do have repair, him and John Mark. He no longer probably would call him that he was a deserter. But he even commends him to Timothy and says, Welcome John Mark. He is your brother, a faithful steward of the gospel. Repair is possible. Reconciliation is possible, regardless of how many times we have not experienced that. So would we just pray right now in the quiet of the space? Would you pray for whatever loss or leaving you've experienced from someone who maybe was walking with you faithfully for years? Would you pray for repair and reconciliation? And not repair reconciliation doesn't mean that it always turns out perfect and there's a really happy ending and everything goes back to normal. But you would pray for repair that maybe things have been left undone. Let's pray right now in the quiet of the space. Lord Jesus, would you hear our prayers? God, the great reconciler who has reconciled us with God, Jesus, and with one another, would you bring repair where needed? reconciliation we're needed. Would you draw lost sons and daughters back home? Would you work, help us work through conflict that's unresolved? Would this story of John Mark be a template, a model that even in the midst of him deserting the mission as a partner, that later on there might be reconciliation and repair, that he might be a faithful partner again? Would, would you bring people back, Lord, that have left? Not just for the sake of building up this church or anything like that, but for the sake of your gospel being displayed as the reconciling gospel in the world. Lord, we ask this in the power of the Spirit.
and in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's continue. Acts 13. I'm going to read a big section now. We only got through one verse. Don't worry, we're going to cover a lot now. Verse 14. It says, From Perga they went down to Poseidon, Antioch, and on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. This is Paul and Barnabas hanging out here in the synagogue. Verse 16. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. That's some command right there. Verse 17. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king. And he gave them Saul, son of Kish, out of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. And God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before coming of Jesus, John had preached repentance and baptism to all people of Israel. And as John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for. There's one coming after me whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, It is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried all that was written about him, they took took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God had said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of the promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purposes to his own generation, he fell asleep and he was buried with, his, with our ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wander and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. This is Paul's sermon. When I was in high school, I was uh, 15 or 16. I was part of this event, a two-day conference called Dare to Share. Does anybody, anybody remember this? It was a big thing when I was in high school, like mid-2000s. I'm making myself sound either really old or really young. But Dare to Share, it was a two-day conference, and what you had was really loud worship music, and your youth group was all supposed to go, really loud worship music, really inspirational talks and like rah-rahs from different local leaders and pastors, maybe even people that flown in, 
and a lot of just candy and chaos uh, as we would go. Now, you'd sit for like a day and a half through all these talks and, and maybe uh, sing some songs, but then they would send you out, and they'd say, okay, you know what, like you've gotten the message now, like dare to share, you got to like be bold, like we're going to go on the streets and we're going to share the gospel with people. And so we're going to send you back with your youth group back to your town that you came from because everyone had come all over the valley. And so we're going to go back and you're going to go door to door and you're going to do a can drive. And what you're going to do is, is real simple. You're going to come up to a door. You're going to knock. When a granny answers the door, which my neighbor was a lot of grannies, when a granny answers the door, you're going to ask if she has any cans for a food drive. And you're going to get some cans and she's going to have five or six cans. And if she does, then when she comes back, you want to say, hey, I'm, I'm doing a survey today. And I'd like to know, what do you think happens when you die? That was the question you were supposed to ask. And it was so terrifying because we had to take turns who was going to lead that door. Like, all right, Charlie, it's your turn on this door. Like, you're going you're gonna to share the gospel. And so we get up to the door, and they get the cans, and they're like, hey, you asked that question. And depending on how they responded, that was your window. That was your moment to jump in, share good news. And you had this, we had this whole formula set up of like, here's how we're going to share it, and Here's what we're going to say. Well, if they responded with like, you know, yes, I do know what happens when you die. Your response back was supposed to be, do you know where you're going when you die? To make it personal now. And then depending on that, you would try to share a cross and Jesus died for your sins. And Now one day you can go to heaven. That's what we did door to door. Very unsuccessfully. But we did get a lot of cans. A lot of cans for that food drive. As I reflect back on this story, I am, one, really thankful for the boldness and the confidence that Dare to Share tries to create in young teenagers to share good news with people, to share the gospel. But what was challenging, and I think I had a disconnect then, is that I don't know if I actually was sharing good news. I was, in a sense, sharing a formula to hopefully get people to say a certain response so then I can, in some ways, like Jesus juke them and say, well, let me tell you actually really what you need in this situation. I didn't know these people. I didn't know their stories. The, the lady who answered the door for me, I have no idea even maybe what her name was. Didn't even get that far. Just get the cans, get the gospel in. That was it. And so there's this disconnect where on one hand, I love the boldness and confidence, but on the other hand, it was a disconnected sharing of the gospel. It wasn't to use a word, it wasn't contextual. didn't actually speak to maybe the lady's needs or her heart or her pains or her frustrations. It didn't know any of her story. It just was like, hey, I'm going to give this formula, and if she says A plus B equals C, then we're good. And we can move on to the next house and get some more cans. I wonder if maybe you've experienced that, maybe when even in coming to the faith when someone's trying to share the gospel with you, the reason I bring this up is because here in Acts 13, Paul is sharing the gospel. He's telling the story from creation, or close to it, to redemption, Jesus, Jesus coming. And interestingly, scholars think with this passage that all the passages that Paul is quoting were the passages that were read that day in the synagogue. So it's like a church service. They'd come to the synagogue, they'd open their, their scrolls, and there would be different readings, an Old Testament, a Psalms reading, a Proverbs reading, or a, a prophet reading, and they'd read these different scriptures. So when they ask Paul to stand up, he is a wizard. He's so inundated in the story, he takes all the scriptures that have been said that morning and weaves them together to showcase how Jesus is the long-awaited king. He's contextual. He's speaking to the people in that moment and that time to their hearts, knowing the audience that he's speaking to with the hearer in mind 
not just giving a formula of what to believe. I think the challenge for us or the implication for us as a church, Missio Dei Communities, is are we sharing the gospel contextually? Like, do we actually have the person in mind when we think about what is actually good news to them? We have this great tool that all of us use of the story symbols, which is fantastic. I use it all the time. But like, are we able with the story symbols, and we, even when we get to rebellion, are we able to, to actually speak to that person's heart where they've actually experienced both a, being a sinner, but also being sinned against? Like, do we know the people's stories intimately enough that we can actually speak what is actually good news for them in light of what the gospel is? Right now, I want you to think of, so before you're thinking of a person who maybe has, has left, I want you to, it could be the same person, but it could be somebody different. I want you to think of a person in your life who is, doesn't know Jesus, who maybe is far from God. If, if it's a neighbor, a coworker, uh, someone that your, your shared mission of your MC is serving, here's some questions to think about as you think about that person in your life. What questions are they currently carrying about faith, God, Christianity? What are their actual que- like? What are their actual questions? What pra- what pains and struggles are they currently experiencing? Like is like what would actually be good news for this person's story? Third, what are the biggest barriers for them Barriers for them to believe the gospel? Like, what, what are maybe their experiences with the church or with Christianity that actually create a barrier that you need to actually figure out a way to name and to pull down? And then what would sound like? What would sound like good news to them? Like, what actually is good news? What do they need to hear? Uh, for some folks maybe who experience some, have experienced some form of oppression, maybe they've been in a really toxic relationship, Maybe they've experienced severe trauma. Like, yes, they need to understand that they have rebelled against God. That is true for all of us. But they also might need to hear that God actually cares about the sin of the entire world and the ways they've been sinned against, that God is a God of justice and care for the vulnerable who always centers those who are at the margins. And maybe they experience themselves here, and they need to hear the good news that God actually centers them in the story. They're welcome to the table. They can find healing and redemption and victory and liberation over whatever bondage they've experienced. Like, what is actually good news? I would love, I would love for you to turn to some people around you. You can use uh, fake names. Uh, Bobby and Susie are great names that I use. Those are great names if there's any Bobby and Susies in here. This is not, this is not a con- condemnation of Bobby and Susie. Those are the names I usually use. But you can turn to somebody. I'd love for you to share, hey, there's this person, Bobby, in my life. I think this is actually what this would actually be good news to them. They're far from God in some way. Like this is actually good news. Or here's one of the questions they have, and I just love for you to share with your group as we think about what is actually good news for folks that are looking often for some some form of good news that Jesus provides. So turn to some people, and then I'll call us back. All right, let me call you back. That was definitely not enough time, but at least to start thinking through whoever maybe came to mind for you. As we journey through this passage, we've gone from seeing the journey and someone leaving, the message, which was how do we share the gospel contextually, 
And then lastly now, the response. If you have your Bible so open, turn to verse 42. We'll finish the story here. Acts 13, verse 42. So the gospel's been shared. What happens next? What's the response? As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. Sounds encouraging to start. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts of Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, a week later, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Can you imagine this? When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Ugh. And they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. In one week, from hearing the good news freely proclaimed in the city gathering to now calling him a fool, basically. Verse 46. Then Paul answered them boldly. Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord had commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored that the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. If you... uh, are part of a business or you have uh, experienced life within a corporation or institution, uh, there's a lot of leadership books that are written around how do you create healthy institutions or organizations or businesses. And often what they'll say within these books, it's really the similar message, the greatest threat to your institution, your organization, dare I say your church, is not from the outside, but it's on the inside. It's actually the insiders that are usually the greatest resistors to change because in some ways the insiders know that their comfort and security and control will be threatened. It's funny though because often we think of on the outside as a threat and yet it's inside. The reason I share this is because right here in the story, one week later, the city gathers to hear the gospel. Can you imagine if next week the city of Phoenix, even just this neighborhood right here, we're, we're lined at the door to hear the good news of Jesus. Like, can you imagine that? Like, line, out, like far, as far as you can see, longer than the Costco gas lines a couple of months ago. Can, I, can anybody give me an amen for that? Holy cow, man, I had to wait 30 minutes to get gas there. I don't know if it was worth those 10 extra cents. But imagine that. And then, but imagine like from inside the room, we're like, nope, like, Tell them to go away. Like, that sounds crazy, and maybe we wouldn't do that, but the inside of an organization, a church, when our comfort or security or control is threatened, often it makes us uncomfortable. And I think here what's happening is, as these people are coming, really, as we use this phrase a lot now, that the, Jew, the Jewish people were being formed by God together, but not for the sake of others. They're missing the mission 
Paul even quotes it here. He's saying, well, I, he's reading that passage from the Gentile light to the nations. That wasn't referring to his mission as an individual. That was supposed to be Israel's mission. You're supposed to be a light to the nations. And you failed. You don't see that the Gentiles coming in as part of God's redemptive plan to heal the whole world. Here's my simple question for you, and I won't get you in groups again. What is the biggest barrier for folks that are outside your missional community or outside of our church community here for them coming in? What is, what is the thing that prevents them from experiencing the goodness and grace of God? Like, what are those barriers that we create that if someone were to walk in or someone were to be part of the life of our shared community within MCs or just a shared life of our church that would be a barrier that we don't even realize, maybe a blind spot we have, that actually prevents people from experiencing and hearing good news. And maybe, yeah, we're not, we're not doing what the Jewish people are doing here with Paul where they're heaping abuse on it. Maybe you're not doing that. But maybe it's more subtle. Maybe there's actually barriers and blind spots that we don't have because of our comforts and our idols that we hold so deeply in our heart that those are threatened and we don't want that. We want to just keep it as it is. But there's people that need to hear good news, that want to hear good news that we often resist, that we don't live for the sake of others. That's my challenge for us this morning. It's a challenge for not just you, but for my church, for Missio Day communities. What are the barriers we've created that actually prevent people from encountering Jesus himself, just like in the story? All right, I'm going to close our time here with the last verse. It says in Acts 13, 52, the disciples left with great joy. What? They were persecuted. They were kicked out of the city. They were heaped abuse on. And this is the pattern in Acts that you guys have probably seen if you've been going through it. They left with great joy. How do you have great joy? I would not have a lot of joy in this situation. I'd probably have a lot of anxiety, to be honest. I've just been publicly humiliated. I've been kicked out of the city. I've been given a bad name. It says they leave with great joy. I just want to leave, leave us here and, and before Anthony leads us into communion. The reason they had great joy is because they knew the one who had come before them. Like remember Acts 1.1, Jesus began to do, they knew that Jesus had begun a work and that he was the model and the template so that regardless of what they faced, they could experience joy because joy isn't a feeling. It's, it's, it's an experience regardless of circumstances. It's, in many ways, it's a habit to remember what is actually true in the situation in a moment. Think about this just for a moment. As John Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas, they could look back to Jesus knowing that he was deserted by his closest friends. And even from the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So they know that, hey, even though we have been deserted, because of Jesus' desertion, we will always belong. He has brought us in and no one will take that away from us. As they faced, or as they shared the message of the gospel and tried to contextualize to the people and their time and place, they remember that Jesus was the ultimate picture of that. God didn't just speak from heaven to us. He came and lived among us. He moved into the neighborhood. How amazing that Jesus came to speak our language, know our customs, so that he might encounter us and give us his love. And then response, even as they experienced humiliation and shame and being kicked out of the city and other places, beaten and bruised, they could remember that even in death, God brings life. That even in Jesus' death, God can do something impossible. 
he can bring life out of the worst of circumstances, out of his own son dying, the great twist of the story. He can bring that as the ultimate reversal to then bring healing and liberation to our world, to you and to me and to our hearts. So they left with great joy because they knew the one who came before them. And for us, as we leave today, would that be our heart and our hope that as we face desertion, as we seek to contextualize the good news of the gospel, and as we deal with a variety of mixed responses, even from our own hearts, that create barriers for others, we know the one who has come before, who has given us a mission and a vision of what it looks like to live as his people. Would you pray with me? And Anthony's going to lead us into communion.